Chris Peterson, my old boss. How goes it, man? Hanging in there pretty well. I like it. What, uh, what have you been spending your time on lately? What's up, what's up with you? Well, let's see. Um, there's the possibility of a strike happening soon, so there's been a fair amount of conversation about that, how well, that's going to go. You pro or against? Strike? Yeah. Like a, uh, like a strike like here in the library? And the university, well, the, the, all of the, all of the classified employees that work at universities in Oregon. Whoa. Yeah. So Monday would be the day today. Uh, the last I heard Sunday, they were going to have their last negotiating session. And, um, if it doesn't, if it doesn't arrive at finality, then, then it's going to be on on Monday. So, yeah. So these are classified employees and I'm not a classified employee. I'm a faculty member. So could you strike anyways in like support or would that be very frowned upon? Well, there are specific rules about what one can and cannot do, and um, I can, I can't strike. I can offer support in other ways, but nice. um, what are they striking against? Just like the fact that, admit, like I mean, yeah, what are they striking about? Well, I think labor issues are becoming more and more heightened in lots of places, not just in Oregon, but it's essentially an issue of trying to keep up with the cost of living mm -hmm. and trying to build an infrastructure for people to live fulfilled professional lives. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. Um, you know, there's rhetoric from both sides that makes both sides sound like they're yep. being unreasonable. And that's what, with everything really mm -hmm. like any kind of political convert or any sort of conversation, there's always the two ends that like, you can you can really just describe to whichever one you kind of want. Um, do you see a do you, like? I mean, what do you see as? Wait, are you? Is this like a, a a thing that's like pretty pressing in your mind? Is like labor labor laws, labor rules kind of thing? Because I imagine it's pretty big. Yeah. So I'm lucky in the sense that I fell into a place where um, I I I'm the sole income for my household and we're able to get by just fine with me working and my wife staying at home and our daughter going to kindergarten. Um, so it's not something that is immediately pressing for me in the sense that it, I know that I'm going to have to, well, I'm, I'll be able to put food on the table. Let's put it that way. Nice. But, uh, in the context of somebody who's been here for a long time and somebody who pays attention and somebody who cares about their colleagues, um, it definitely is something that would be distressing to realize that other people do have to stress about putting food on the table. Well, and you don't have to look very hard for to see plenty of examples of that. Yeah. Um, Corvallis is an expensive place to live. Mm -hmm. And from my vantage point, more, more recently of somebody who led a, a search for a classified employee, it became pretty clear that the wages that we were offering were not sufficient for somebody to be able to live here. <laughs> that gets to an interesting place, doesn't it? And that's not a library issue or an OSU issue. These, cause mm -hmm. these wages are set at the state level. And so that, I guess that's what it comes down to. That's part of this conversation, the statewide conversation about strike or not strike. Um, they need to assess whether or not these jobs are, um, worth having on some level or they're going to put somebody in a position to just live, live in a place where they work. So something big's gonna happen Monday, one way or the other. Like whatever today kind of comes up with the discussions, um, if they strike, yeah. I mean, they could be on strike for a week or, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, so we'll see. Um, as I said, Sunday is the last bargaining session. I don't know if they're bargaining today or not, but it's kind of looking like it's going to happen. And this has been a possibility many times in the past, but in my memory or my experience here, it's only happened once and it was fairly short. Um, that was a while ago. That was when I was still a student. So it was over 20 years ago. Speaking of history, that's yeah. kind of what you do here. You're a member of SCARC. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really funny is that with a couple of guests, I've said that, um, like, I don't, I don't pay a bunch of attention even to my own memory or history. So I'm curious, what's your, what's your perspective on the importance of archiving things? I do think it's important. I'm just playing devil's advocate and mm-hmm. kind of having fun with it all, you know? Well, I mean, there's lots of lofty answers that one could give to that question. Honestly, I don't really care. I mean, I I am in this job because I like history, because I enjoy engaging with the materials, and I am in a position as an oral historian to create materials. And I've seen over time that this stuff gets used by other people for all different kinds of things. I mean... um, you have your hardcore researchers who are digging deep into boxes and writing doctoral dissertations or books. And we have plenty of that, but you have plenty of people too, that find a photograph that we've digitized and put up online that they're going to use for, you know, a history day display in their high school or, um, for some sort of promotional campaign that they're doing like at a brewery, that sort of thing. Yeah. The beautiful thing is that recordings are getting so much better. So a hundred years from now, like someone could use a good recording of you Whereas opposed to you're looking at like uh, lectures in like the 50s of these famous people and it's kind of hard to make out like Feynman and Linus Pauling and stuff. It's like the audio is not quite there and it's like things are going to get a lot better in the near future. <laughs> well, I, I certainly <laughs> hope so. I know that you're, uh, you're a purist in terms of your, your intentions <laughs> for audio quality. I think it's important. Well, here's the thing. There's so much content out there today that if the quality isn't there, there's infinite other better quality. I mean, quality is king as far as I'm concerned. Like, do you listen to, to podcasts or shows or anything? Um, I, no, not really. Not I, really. I know what they are. That's right, <laughs> right. But like, like at the very least, like you want it to be clear. Um, I think yeah. they actually did a study where voices that like worse quality recordings, the people are less believable and convincing and likable mm. than better quality recordings. Mm. So Interesting. Like, That's a trip on itself. Like the, the, whatever psychology goes behind, maybe it's like, I think it probably puts a, a barrier between you and the person of like, oh, you're judging the audio quality and it kind of like goes on to the person. I'm not sure what it is, but mm-hmm. so I like it. Um, but yeah, at what point does this become history? You know what you and I are doing right now? Yeah. I think as soon as we're done, as soon as we're done. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so what are we talking about? Where's it, when we conduct an oral history interview with somebody, we are creating a historical document. That's what I tell people. Mm. And it gets described in an archival, archival finding aid just the same way a piece of paper would. Yeah. It's an access is provided to it, that content the same way that a piece of paper would. And it will be preserved in perpetuity the same way we would preserve everything that we have in our archive. So I, it, to the extent that everything we have is historical, it is also historical. Everything. Historical is a, it, as from the point of view of an archivist, is it actually is a judgment because we have mm. records that we de- we deem not to be of historic value that we actually destroy. Really? Yeah. That's we are the records manager for the university in addition to being the archival Have repository. you ever destroyed something and like a year later, like the importance of it's found, like someone wants to use it for a study and just say, shit. 
For me, you only have so much room. Are we allowed know? to curse? Yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's a podcast. I don't know. I'm in, still in the workplace. Um, but a really funny take on this is uh, someone asked the question, at what point does grave robbing become archaeology? Mm, well, yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. like there's definitely a date of like 20 years ago. It's like, all right, that's like a historical event. But like, is Greta Thunberg coming here? Like, is that a historical event? It's currently happening. Right. Well, it would it would be deemed a historical event by the, the point of view of an archivist. If somebody of that consequence came here and and engaged in a way that was documented somehow, we would absolutely save that. Yeah. As to whether or not we've destroyed something that somebody wanted, I I don't I maybe who knows. I mean, but if we don't have it anymore, then they wouldn't know they want it because sure. most of the time a researcher only knows what they know. seeks out material because they found that you have it. Mm, they might think to themselves, wouldn't it be nice if they had that sort of thing, but they would never think to ask it. So we wouldn't know if we got rid of it. Okay. Speaking of, speaking of oral history, all of this stuff, you were at one point my boss. That's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing. And just so it said, you're a wonderful employer. What it, what it, what's your, what's your ideology between or, or in, in like, having a professional thing, but not like being too, like, did you have a good boss at some point or what are some, what are some ways that you found a good balance between, um, of how to like manage or overlook, oversee a project? Lots of questions there. So (laughs) what, what's my point of view on project management? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Or or, or what makes you into good, like what made you a good boss? Cause I mean, I know my perspective. (laughs) Yeah. You were a great boss, man. You, uh, and Dr. Massey here, which I've also done a show with, um, it was just, it's just good, you know, like yeah. some people, but I've also had some bosses who are just too ego attached to like these little meticulous things. Um, it's just interesting. Like just working for you, you had a lot, of, you gave a lot of freedom. I'm curious, like, has anyone taken advantage of that? And like, probably, who knows I mean, that, that probably, I mean, if you ask me what my, what my secret is, the, the best way to be a good boss is to hire good people yeah. because you don't have to spend a lot of time micromanaging them. And uh, I, through a various series of consequences or coincidences or whatever, um, am in a position where I'm doing lots of different things all the time. And so I don't really have the time to micromanage somebody. So when I hire somebody, I look for somebody who has that ability to work independently Mm. and make decisions on their own and check in with me about questions they have. But if, and this was what the case with you too, we sat down, we talked about what the project was going to be. And I said, go for it. And we would check in with each other from time to time and you would, you initiated all the communication with folks. Yeah, it worked out well. The the one big thing that like really compact, I'm like, whoa, he knows what he's doing in terms of a boss position. My talk with you out of all of them got corrupted the file because I wasn't watching the battery level of like the charger and stuff. And I was like, so stressed. Like I don't really get stressed in life too much, but I was like, I, I, I messed up. Cause that was two hours of your time. You know, that was mm-hmm. a two hour conversation. So I was like, Shh, no snap. Um, so thank you for treating that well, man. I think like people can so easy. I think some people want opportunities to be angry in life, you know? Uh-huh. So it's kind of, I, I just appreciate that people like you want to make the world a more peaceful and calm, chill place, you know? Well, yeah, I guess I do my best as far as that's concerned. But I mean, I was in the room with you when the when the battery failed, and I it's my equipment, and I'm the one who showed you how to use it. So I should have probably taken some responsibility for it too. But what I remember about that, I remember a couple things about that, is that you succeeded in retrieving a lot of that file. I mean, there was a chunk of it that got lost, but um, that was no trivial thing. You got on, did your googling, and <laughs> and and found a way to get most of it back, and then the experience of re-recording part of the interview was 
kind of interesting from that's uh, something I've never done before. You know, I've yeah. done 200 oral history interviews and never had to do that before. Well, it's interesting to see how you change this, the story, mm-hmm. you know, having a second time. Cause you're like, am I going to say the exact same? That sounds rehearsed. And it's, yeah, yeah. it's a weird, that's why, um, I've done these conversations where sometimes I plan it, like I'm going to bring up this and this and this, and I just notice they go worse. Like if I have an agenda. Uh-huh. So well, um, that's the difference between an oral history interview and a conversation, I think. Ah, there we go. Which is so weird because a lot of people always call my show. Oh, you have another interview coming up. I'm like, I don't know what I did to get it defined as that, but I don't want that, you know? Well, I think that, um, I think it, maybe this is more conversational than an interview, but it's still an interview in the sense that you decided you wanted to sit down with me and you have at least a, a slight agenda. You're recording something to make available online through your podcast. Yeah. I'm just hearing other people's perspectives on right, things, you know? Right. But an oral history interview is a, a very specific exchange, a very specific interaction that one has with somebody else. And I, I teach... I teach this to students when we talk about what is an oral history interview and we talk about how it is, it's a structured interaction with a particular ambition in mind. Mm. It's not a conversation. And so you and I are going back and forth. Um, that's not how ideally an oral history interview should be done. It should be 90, 10, not 50, 50. That's how my show started. I think maybe it's like a first impressions of the person who actually spoke with right before you, Jason Dorsett was also my first ever one. And I think I took my, my work, um, under you and, and took it to that. So it started off as like, kind of like interviews and I'm like, I want to talk to, I want to have fun, you know? (laughs) So I just kind of like rolled with it and changed it as I went. Um, but that's so crazy how everything in life comes together. Like all these little things that you start up kind of eventually come together in one big, uh-huh. you know, you like, I don't know. Have you noticed that a bunch of threads in your life kind of like come back up reoccurring or do you think that's just random coincidence? Do you believe in coincidence or uh, synchronicity, I guess? Well, I don't know. I, I think that there have been a few coincidences in my life that were extremely consequential and very fortunate and that I would, I would not be sitting in this seat had they not happened. And I'm very grateful for them. Um, is there some sort of cosmic design to that? Probably not. I think that I was just really lucky. I know lots of people that are very talented that haven't had that break that maybe they haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve because they didn't have that moment in time where things broke their way. And I didn't really even realize it when it happened to me. I certainly didn't realize it, but looking back on it now with a historical perspective, I realized that this was, this was extremely lucky that this happened and, and literally charted the entire direction of my entire life. That's um, nuts. Do you, so, th- do you think that there are, what, what do you, do you think your life would have looked completely different? Like if that didn't happen, what, what path you would have gone on? Would you have been like a, a, a well, a, let me tell the story. So this, yeah. the, what happened was I was dating a girl. So I was, I went to school here at OSU and I've told you the story before in a different context, but I'll tell it again. Going to school here at OSU dating a girl from Nepal and she was going to go back the next summer with her sister and a couple of friends to hang out for the summer asked me if I wanted to come and I said sure of course so I was like a sophomore in college at this point and needed to get a job to save up some money to go to Nepal and the thing I wanted to do was to work in a video store the video stores were still a thing back then because I was really into movies and this was the era of Quentin Tarantino and he worked in a, a video store and I, and you know, of course, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and those are both movies I worshiped. 
Um, so I thought it'd be great to be that guy, to be the guy who works in a video store who knows lots about movies and can point people to things that they're going to think, wow, that was a great recommendation. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's so pretty much what it, what it comes down to. Pre Google, Google yeah. would have put that out of a job now. Yeah, yeah, Google, yeah, Google didn't, didn't exist at that point. The internet did, but no Google. So there was one possibility available to me that was to work at a Hollywood video. And I, they, they asked you to write an essay in, in addition to your application. And I did, I spent a lot of time thinking about it and put together something I thought was very thoughtful and learned, um, probably pretentious as well. Who knows? Very likely. Um, but applied and never heard back from them. The other job I applied for was to work in the library in special collections, to be a student employee in special collections. And, and that was my second choice. I mean, if I'd gotten that video store job, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have applied or I wouldn't followed up on the application to the library. You'd have been making movies. Who knows where your life would be? That's wild to think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I never had any intention to work in a library. I mean, I liked libraries. I'd spent a lot of time in libraries as a kid and I'd spent a fair amount of time in this library. And I was interested in, in the possibilities of being, you know, working in an archive. But these days you, if you don't have a very clear focus on getting into the world of libraries and studying and getting a master's degree in library science. Um, there's no chance of you getting a job. And do you think that's bad that people have to like laser focus if they do want to do something? Cause that changed your life for the better by just like random happenstance bringing you somewhere. Well, it may, maybe, maybe it's bad. Maybe it's not, maybe it's good. Maybe the people that are in the profession now are more motivated and, and have, are more intentional and want to do things and, and learn things in a specific way that is helping advance the profession. I think that there's a case that could be made for that for sure. Um, but whether it's bad or good, there is no, there is no option that you have to do it that way now. And you didn't, I mean, I'm 43 years old and I'm the last, basically the last generation of people that could have gotten into libraries the way that I did just because there are so many people now that, that decide they want to get into the libraries that have a library degree that's oversaturated the job market. That's insane. That's all job markets. Do yeah. you want to know what the, the one little tweak here is that, that makes a lot more things make sense? Cause you, you see, Oh, every job market's saturated and you hear that, um, un unemployment's at an all time low, but no one's getting paid enough. It's cause jobs like Uber and GitHub and all those things count for the, for the employment rate. Mm -hmm. It's like all these people have like these small jobs that don't actually allow them to live. Mm -hmm. It's, it's becoming weird. I think we're eventually going to hit a breaking point of something like, like a big strike. Well, maybe it's happening. I mean, maybe we're yeah. dovetailing back. So United Auto Workers are on strike right now. University employees in Oregon, perhaps. These are two data points in a much larger sea. But another thing that has struck me was I, I went to the Society of American Archivists conference this last summer in, in Austin. And labor was a big issue there too. I mean, not only is it people that don't have jobs as people that are, that have gone to school, gotten an advanced degree, accumulated a significant amount of student loan debt and have jobs that don't pay them enough to get ahead. I mean, th th it allows them to keep current with their debt payment and that's about it. And so there's a lot of frustration there. And this was a, a really big theme for this conference. It wasn't declared as such, but it emerged very quickly. This was something that a lot of people are struggling with and really resonating with. Yeah. And Jeez. I don't see that changing. I mean, so we talk about the gig economy as, as you referenced, but there's also automation and people are going to continue to lose jobs to computers and robots. And, and that's something that, pe that Western European countries are already struggling with right now. This whole idea about a universal income and people 
receiving money from the government just to sustain themselves. It's not a very American ideal, at least the way that America has fashioned itself in the last however many years. But um, there has to be some sort of decision made at some point or some sort of, or this breaking point will absolutely occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that opens a whole can of worms starting to talk about UBI and all that stuff. Um, to take a radical left turn, mm-hmm. hearing you talk about like all this stuff is so... So when you meet people, you totally have like a, a perception of who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And then I heard, I did the the talk with you and I heard your whole background of like you started by playing, um, you know, lacrosse and stuff and you're into Quentin Tarantino and I'm like, what? So I'm curious, do you think being in a library and this whole, like having these sort of things consume your mind, like has, has changed you as a person? Do you think if you got a movie job, you'd be a radically different person or do you think you'd be the same person just working different jobs? Well, no, I'm sure I'd be very different. I think that, so again, when you asked me about the connection to history, my connection to history is partly born out of just a, I, so I learned at some point about myself that I'm happiest when I'm learning something Nice. and you can't avoid it at this job. You're always learning something new. Um, I don't get to dig into collections as much as I used to, or as much as I would want to because of various obligations. But one of the things I do is answer a bunch of reference for questions and that forces me to do research on other people's behalf. And so I'm constantly learning about random people. Like today I learned who the head of the food science and technology department was from 1959 to 1973. Never really would have thought to look for that. So funny. But now I know and it's tucked away in my back pocket and he was here for a while and he's probably had made a big impact. I never heard of the guy before. So, um, my background in this library in archives is of Linus Pauling. And I know a lot about Linus Pauling because I was very focused on Linus Pauling for a long time. The vitamin C guy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, amongst other things. Yes. What but did he win a Nobel prize for? So he won two Nobel prizes. Whoa. He won the Nobel chemistry prize in 1954 for his work on structural chemistry. He's the, the author of the nature of the chemical bond, which is essentially the modern at the time, at least modern conception of how, Atoms form into molecules. Extremely important book published in 1939. Whoa! And then he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1963 for his work um, agitating against above-ground nuclear testing. And so he was amongst a small cadre of people that were very vocal in saying that if you detonate uh, nuclear bombs in the atmosphere, that radiation is going to fall down to the earth and cause problems. It's something we take for granted now. Um, but back then there was not the political consensus behind that idea. There was certainly scientific consensus behind the idea and he noted that and that's how he built momentum. He circulated this petition around the world for scientists saying, stop doing this, stop detonating these bombs in the atmosphere. Well, what's so crazy is, I mean, if you had to guess, you might know the answer, but if you were to guess how many nuclear bombs have gone off, how many would you guess? Uh, it's in the hundreds, I think. I mean, in, in terms of the tests, is it? Yeah, all uh, in the Pacific Atoll and then in, I don't know where are they all doing, but I'm like, that's insanity that mm-hmm. they've set off that many bombs, you know? Yeah. Um, I was just hearing that apparently when they were making the first bomb, like obviously they had a very important task then because like if Germany did come up with the bomb first, we'd be living in a different world. Mm-hmm. So they had good motive to come up with it, but apparently some of the scientists thought... Um, not all of them. Some of them thought that if we did uh, put off a nuclear bomb, that it would light all the oxygen in the atmosphere on fire. Yeah. So they still <laughs> took that risk that would eventually that could possibly kill everyone in the world. Uh-huh. And I'm like, how would you be doing that? That is so crazy. Yeah. And now that's a fact that the majority of people today probably will go their entire lives without knowing 
that's so weird how important the moment always is. Yeah. But then a hundred years down the line, no one knows or cares, you know? Well, every generation has their struggle, right? And the, the nuclear generation, there was a lot of anxiety, um, around these weapons and, and Pauling was, he was part of that. I mean, he was very much apolitical before the conclusion of world war two. He was a Republican. He, he, um, did a lot of research for the U S government during world war two for military projects. But he and lots of other people recognized that things had changed with the detonation of these bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they were, they were nervous about it. And the more he learned about it, and the more that the Soviet Union and the United States became interested in building bigger and bigger bombs and hydrogen bombs and whatnot, the more he realized that this was a possible threat to the continuation of the species. And and so that was the shadow that that my parents at least grew up under, and and to a lesser extent, me during the 1980s. And now your kids are growing up under the climate change yep. stress. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, and, and my kids' parents too. It's something I think about a lot too. So yeah. it's, it's a shift and the bombs are still there. <laughs> but there's something else also to, to think about now. And we can't escape the, we can't escape the outcomes of our own activity, I suppose. No, something, something that you like a kind of thing that I know. So when you talk like you, you've done so much research into this person, you know, mm -hmm. you've, you've like, if you met him, if you were alive today and you met him, it's such a weird connection because you know who he is on such a deep level, but then he would look at you and be like, no, have no idea who you are. That's so weird that like technology is getting us to a place where one person can intimately know another person and they don't even know the other person's name or what they look like. Yeah. No, I, and I've thought about that. It would be difficult for me to meet him. I think I would, I would be, I would have a hard time, I think getting myself prepared for it. I'm sure he'd be very welcoming. He was a warm person. Um, that said, my understanding is that the best interactions that he had with other people were usually pretty scientific in, in nature and I'm not a scientist. Yeah. Um, so I think it'd probably be a surface conversation initially in some way though. I have been able to commune with him on some level by interviewing his son, Linus Jr. Oh. And have, and that had a very extensive exchange with him. Um, interviewed him eight times, I think. And, and you know, Hawaii? was that the Hawaii thing? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, two, two of them were here also, but, and it's not the same person, obviously it's his son. And, and in some respects, Linus Jr. Um, does not have as close of a connection with his dad as the other children did because he was the oldest one. He moved away when he was 18, he moved to Hawaii and, and there was plenty of communication, but he wasn't living in the house. He wasn't living next door. Um, but nonetheless, there was, there was insight shared there were stories exchanged. Um, and there was an intimacy to that, that approximated the possibility of having talked to Pauling once upon a time. But you know, I, I was a senior in high school. I was like the summer after my senior year in high school when Pauling died. So there was never any possibility of that. He did come here though, before, before I was here, he came to, to the old special collections several times. And my old boss, Cliff Mead met him and knew him a little bit and had that opportunity to interact with him, but it was more of a professional interaction archivist to, um, creator of a collection essentially, rather than sitting down and getting to know somebody on a more intimate basis. Here's the interesting thing about, um, about that whole idea of, of doing it more professionally versus like a more conversational kind of like a, is like, is, is the goal of uh, preserving it for uh, scientific work or for like more people to be able to, cause it's like if, if Cliff Mead had like a really just like a a jovial conversation with him 
it mm-hmm. may be more more easier like like it may be more 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 eyes on it so i'm like is the goal of archiving things just an opportunity for like those who really need it for research or is it like i don't know man i in terms of oral history interview yeah well it's both so there are at least a couple of really compelling reasons to do oral history interviews one of them is to document individuals or communities that are not well documented and so oral history as a as a discipline emerged right after world war ii for a couple of different reasons one was that there there was a greater growing interest in people's history and the other was that recording technologies became more portable it may became more of a possibility to go to somebody's house and interview them um but oral historians were amongst the earliest uh collectors of of content of data about underrepresented communities and we think a lot about the oral tradition in native american communities but there's you know these are groups of people that were not documented on paper they were, they were not in the boardroom there wasn't minutes taken of their meetings that sort of thing these are stories these are songs these are points of view um, dialects that were very much oral and uh, could not have been collected in, in any sort of meaningful way in any other, in any other, in any other way. Um, so there was that, but there's the other piece of it that I find very compelling is texture. Um, so we talk about you have a meeting and you have minutes of the meeting and that is a piece of paper or electronic record these days that will reflect the content of the meeting, but it doesn't give a sense of what it was like to be in that room. And you get that by talking to the person. But there are so many minutes. Like, I mean, I see all these books of each fraternity and like, you know, like they have all their minutes mm-hmm. um, in their books. And it's like, who's going to look at it though? You well, know, there's... somebody who's researching the history of that fraternity would have to look at that stuff if they were, if they were trying to do an honest job as a scholar. Yeah. But again, it's going to be the data of that. It's not going to it's be pale the in comparison feel, to a, a recorded. You're not going to get a sense of who else was in that room and how they were feeling and... Um, and you know, an oral history interview also will give you more context about an individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them are pretty limited in scope. Maybe you're talking very specifically about a project or a career, but if you have the opportunity to expand beyond that a little bit, you're going to learn more about them as a person and that will necessarily inform how history views that individual. Are there any modern oral history interviewers like Larry King or Zane Lowe that you, that you really like and, um, think is putting out good work these days? Almost like well, models or like role models in the field. N- no, I mean I I'm I haven't cared enough to try to figure that out. Okay. I have a role model of sorts. It's not somebody who's contemporary, but it's a woman by the name of Jennifer Lee, who worked here, not in the library. She worked at at the Horner Museum when it was on the campus of, of OSU, and she is. Um, the previous generation, I suppose, of, of oral history and oral historian that I am, me and a couple of colleagues are now walking in her shoes. But it, for me, it's fascinating because the, so the, as I said, oral history became a thing after World War II, more or less. And there is one really early oral history interview in our collections from a, roughly that period of time. But then there's not much of anything until the 70s. And the entity that made that happen was the Horner Museum. The Horner Museum decided that they wanted to have an oral history program. And the museum was constantly looking for money to basically stay afloat. 
and it ceased to exist in 1990 when the citizens of Oregon decided to limit their property taxes and lots of things got cut, the Horner Museum among them. But for about 15 years, from 1975 to 1990, and I've looked at her personnel file, so I know this, they scrapped together little bits and pieces of money from here and there, and her appointment changed by tenths of a percentage point from year over year based on how much money they could find to keep her going. But she did a lot. She did a lot of stuff, and it was super valuable now. So in addition to creating content um, in a more contemporary fashion, I, part of my mission is to take that stuff that she mostly she made, digitize it, make it available online for people who are certainly not mostly not alive anymore. The the stories that they shared that were recorded on audio cassettes that were transcribed with typewriters. We now have the technology to digitize that audio cassette, to digitize that paper transcript, to put up online, contextualize it, create metadata for it, and make it available to the whole world in a way that you know the people that did it at the time would have had no clue that this is ever a possibility. Yeah. So Jennifer Lee, I mean, I think she's still alive. I think she's out there somewhere and hats off to her. She, she did amazing work and she's a big part of, of the cultural history of this university, I would suggest in a, in a name that very few people know. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so wild that if you didn't bring her up right here, like, like it's it's interesting that some things can just sunset without ever like I don't know it's it's a it's an interesting concept to know that we might not be remembered someday. Mm-hmm. That's the power of the archivist. I mean, so the archivist's credo is collect, preserve, provide access, and that's what motivates all that we, all that we do. Um, fundamentally, that's what motivates all that we do. But that said, we have more collections than we'll ever be able to describe, and that is. A, Maybe it's it's probably not a secret. It's an open secret about every archive. Every archive has a backlog. Every archive has more content than they will be able to provide access to. Because it so takes a long time to transcript this and digitize it, right? Well, that's just oral history. I mean, I'm talking mm-hmm. about everything. So well, we get hundreds of cubic feet of records that c- come pouring in every year. And wow. you know, we're a staff. We're of limited means. We and have limited X, space here. X number of people and X number of hours in the day to work on this. Wow. And, Processing a collection is very labor and in, in time intensive. So there is a um, series of choices that one has to make as an archivist about what are you going to work on? And that is important. It's consequential. And that's another thing actually was coming up a lot in this conference that I went to in Austin was how do you make that? And what is the role of essentially the activist in this as an archivist and in, in, in documenting these underrepresented groups, for example, or making decisions to collect material preserve material, provide access to material. Um, so there, there's a sneaky power to being an archivist for sure. You know, we don't try to be punitive and erase people from <laughs> history, but we can do lots of things to make it easier for people to find out about them for sure. So at a certain point, if you're getting hundreds of, or I mean, you're getting a lot of material, you do at some point have to burn the books that you don't have enough room for. We shred things. We don't burn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just out of, out of concept. Cause then, yeah. So um, most of what we get in terms of books, we would never get rid of because our book collecting is rare mm. books. And so that's something there's a lot of monetary value to that in addition to intellectual value. And anything that is deemed historic doesn't get tossed. Mm, I mean, cool. you re- reappraise collections from time to time and maybe you'll decide, well, yeah, we shouldn't have kept this in the first place. But that doesn't happen very often. The, the things that get shredded are things that come into the record center. And those are 
materials that the state mandates that you keep for X period of time. They actually create a schedule where you say, okay, this particular thing, it's created by a public entity, OSU, and the state says we have to keep this for anywhere between six months to a hundred years. I mean, and everything has a schedule associated with it. And then at the end of that schedule, the records manager, who's also the university archivist here, evaluates that material and says, is this historic or not? And if it's not, then it gets shredded. That's so crazy. Like the gatekeepers of, of what of the past makes it to the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, us in concert with the state or the state historic records advisory board is the, the entity that creates the records retention schedule. But yeah, like if you weren't doing this, what, what would you think you'd be doing? Me? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I said, I've worked here for 23 years. I mean, last Monday was the 23 year anniversary of my employment as a student in special collections. And I was 20 years old at Holy that point. Cow. So my entire, uh, for all intents and purposes, my entire career has been in Here. this building doing this. And it this was where a, you met your wife. This yeah, is yeah, it everything. A, it was a total accident too. So what would I have been doing? I don't know. I, I, I'm sure I would have gone on to get an advanced degree or tomorrow. If this completely OSU as a whole gets defunded, would you try to go to a, <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you go to a different uh, like archival place or would you, have you ever had, had any other thoughts about things you might, pursue in life. Yeah. No, I mean, so I would definitely try to get another archivist job. I would have to move somewhere for sure. I mean, I'm extremely fortunate to have the job I have and live in the place that I live in and get to spend time on the campus of my alma mater every day, a place I have deep affection for. And to have, I've lived in Corvallis now, well, for almost 26, 26, yeah, 26 years and uh, have got to know it well and it's home for me now and and everything is very comfortable it's a great fit and, i like it um so but if if osu ceased to exist then i would have to go somewhere else and my entire portfolio is is as an archivist so i try to find an archives job somewhere else but i'd have to leave i have to move probably to different a different state and just go wherever a job happens to be in missouri or someplace like that the biggest thing that that it's funny that it stops you from um or that would stop some uh, entity from being defunded is proving that it's worthwhile and profitable which is interesting from uh like a, a collection like this where it's not like it's not directly bringing in money to us it's not like a what is it so so well, is it or isn't it so the, well, the, the, that's the, the interesting argument to make isn't it the, to someone who isn't completely in it right so as a department we're certainly not making money but um there but are rela- relationships that are made in archives that benefit the university in a broader way. And it's not any coincidence that there are plenty of donor events that happen in our reading room or that people get tours, uh, VIPs get tours of special collections. Um, It's an inviting space and it's an inviting space for a few reasons. Number one, we need to have a secure space that is people can do research in effectively, but it also is a showpiece and they bring people here. Um, to cultivate those relationships. So in the same way that athletic departments don't always necessarily, well, usually don't make money. People they don't? Talk, no. I always thought they don't. did. No. Someone convinced me that they did because I was always like, man, why does OSU spend so much money on football? But then someone told me, oh, it actually ends up bringing in more money than it costs. Well, it does, yeah, but the, not the not to the department itself, to the university. So mm-hmm. you cultivate relationships. You have alumni that come back that have affection for their campus that get together with their buddies, and then you can hit them up and say, wasn't this great? Hey, give us some money to OSU. So, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily go to the athletic department. It could go to the College of Engineering, but that bond is strengthened by the experience of coming 
back to campus for football or basketball or whatever. But the, the only sports that make money are, fo- are football and men's basketball. Yeah. They, the entire budget for the athletic department is sustained by those two sports. That's pretty wild. Is it taxed on your end or on like OSU's end or is OSU like considered like a nonprofit? It's a nonprofit. Yeah. OSU is a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But people don't, don't, what, what is the definition of a nonprofit then? Cause doesn't like the heads of OSU make a lot of money. Wouldn't that be profiting? Or is it like they don't like stockpile? Well, there's a market for labor and you have to pay to secure a president that you want to have being your president. So there's that. But OSU doesn't make money. No, it, it has a budget that zeroes out. Wow. Well, that's got to be, I mean, good in theory, but then it seems like when rougher years come by, like they don't have a budget. I mean, they can store up some to, to put into the worst years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's carryover and then that is unavoidable because people leave and you hadn't planned on them leaving. So you had budgeted for their salary and then the end of the fiscal year comes and you still have that money. You're not going to get rid of it, but you save it essentially for a rainy day. It's actually been, the library has had several people leave and that's one of the ways that we've absorbed some budget rescissions that have happened lately is we just already had the money around because we had these open positions. Yeah. So something I'm curious about, uh, working here for 23 years, do you, uh, do you watch shows like the office and stuff? Like, I mean, this is like a big part of your life. I watch the British office. I'm Damn. loyal to the British office. I've never seen any of their, I've never seen the American. You've office. never seen it. No. Holy cow. Have you seen the British office? Um, I watched the first two episodes. Well, holy cow, Tiger. I know. Check it out. It's the best show ever made. It's the, Ricky Gervais was introduced to the world by the original office. And it's right. only 12 episodes. All right. I'll it's watch actually 14 it. episodes. There's, there's six half hour, there's 12 half hour episodes and two, um, special episodes at the end. I like it. It's hey. not a significant investment of your time and it's the best show ever made. So do it. Wow. People who really like Firefly or Twin Peaks are going to yell. <laughs> like people, people really like their, their shows. I'll definitely give it a chance. And next time I speak with y'all, I'll bring it up. Uh, do you have, what, what movies do you think today? When you used to think of movies, you used to think of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, what do you think are like kind of like the, the really good ones pushing the field or if you're still interested in movies? Yeah. I, um, I, I watched a lot of documentaries these days. That's mm. part of the, I've always had this documentary nerd inside of me. Um, my wife likes to tell the story. <laughs> the first time that, um, it was our third, our third date. I think I invited her over to watch a movie and, and she said yes. And, and I went to Hollywood video and I spent a lot of time thinking about what do I want to get? What do I want to get? And, um, ultimately selected a, a documentary called speeds, New York. It's about a guy named speed, Timothy speed, Lovich. He was a tour guide, um, a very flamboyant tour guide who provided, I thought really interesting insight into New York city. And I thought this is great. This is going to show that I'm, I'm interesting too. And she's going to like this a lot. And, <laughs> and, and she was, uh, aghast that I got a documentary when I invited her over for a movie. She thought to herself, this isn't a movie. And the other, <laughs> the other day she, we were talking about this again. And she said that, uh, up until that point, she'd seen documentaries, but it only been in the classroom. <laughs> she had never seen a documentary at home. So she wasn't expecting that. In any case, um, I, I've always had this interest in nonfiction. Um, I'm sure burden burgeoning out of my professional life as well. So I try to watch as many documentaries as she'll allow me to. We watch our TV time is limited to roughly 30 to f- 30 to 60 minutes in the evening. And that's it. Um, so you have to kind of navigate, try to keep her happy with other things, yeah. but with your love of nonfiction, do you want to, uh, what's your goal? Do you want to create anything of your own in terms of like, do you want to make a documentary a book no, or anything? No, no, no. I, I, so my, 
my portfolio is is being built in the office in the workplace and um i've done a lot of creating of content some of it with my name on it some of it with not but it's mostly available online too and that for me it's very gratifying to know that that once I'm, once i'm gone it's still going to exist it makes me feel very proud and pleased to be in that circumstance that i'm in right now to have that opportunity to put stuff online to make it available and to know that I was the one who did it and it wouldn't have happened had I not done it. Absolutely. There's a total trip of thinking that people used to probably think that when they wrote physical books and like recorded things physically. So I wonder if there's going to be a next digital would have put like things that are recorded and archived on the internet out of date and there'll be people have to transcribe digital things to whatever this next medium is. No one could have guessed digital 200 years ago, you know? Yeah. That'll just be a, a port in the back of our heads that we plug into and somebody yeah. can just stream their data into the back of your head and be proud of that. That would be wild. <laughs> yeah. Are you against this whole automation and technology um, progress? I mean, you can't really be against it, you know? But, like, do you think do you think automation is actually, like, a like a threat to people's jobs, or do you think... I'm, I'm sure it is, yeah. It, I mean, there's no question that it is. And it already has eliminated plenty of jobs. The manufacturing sector in, in this country, at least, and lots of other places, is a shadow of what it once was. And... And that's a big reason why Donald Trump got elected because he made these promises that he was going to bring it back somehow. But the cultural wheel has turned. It's not going to happen. It's more efficient for robots to work 24 hours than for a human being to three human beings to work 24 hours who get sick and and have, have to pay them to take their <laughs> right and have to take their kids to the doctor and that sort of thing. So um, there's no question about it. And the same thing with computers. I and mean, we can do all kinds of things now, even in the archival setting, that wasn't possible when I started that, uh, makes things much more efficient. We're able to do our jobs much. Well, we're able to create product much more quickly than we once could have when, you know, if you're taking the example, the core, the core work of the archivist is to describe an archival collection as a finding aid. Well, how did you do that before there was a computer? Would you do it, write it down on a piece of paper and have a binder at the desk? I mean, literally, yes, that's what it was. So, how did the researcher know that this thing existed? They didn't know. They would call you on the phone probably and sit and say, this is what I'm after. And you'd have this very detailed exchange with them to try to figure out if it was even a possibility for them to come do research in your repository. Now they can get online and see the finding aid you created online and say, I want to come in and this is the box I want to look at. So think about how much more efficient that is. Yeah, which is a good thing. You really can't fight uh, technology. So I've got someone coming um, pretty soon. Do you have any closing thoughts, calls to action for people, message you want to share? Um, <laughs> do I have any message to share? I don't know, Tiger. Uh, it's my message is I'm not somebody who is super outreachy in, in my, in my worldview or my, my approach to life. I'm kind of insular and my message is for myself and that's to try to keep it together. Try to try to live your life and try to appreciate what is happening um, around you appreciate your good fortune. And I've had plenty of it. So I suppose if I were to put forth any sort of message for the rest of the world, it would be try to do that too. But again, I, I understand that I'm in a privileged position and um, lots of things have broken my way over time. So that's, that's for me, that's for my thing is to try to be present, appreciate what you have and, um, continue to do good work and try to make a light impact on the world because god knows we need it we really do beautiful yeah. thank you very much for your time man i appreciate it sure thanks tiger mm -hmm.